This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews, hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 52. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. If you've ever listened to Colin Cowherd, a national sports talk radio and TV host on Fox Sports, you might have heard him talk about that in life we can be one of two things, especially when it comes to parenting, and we can either be a great example or a horrible warning based on how we live our lives and conduct ourselves But at times I question, can you be both? And our guest this episode just might be both. And that's former 16-year Major League Baseball veteran pitcher Dwight Gooden. Now, if you're a product of growing up in the 80s, then you know Dwight, famously known as Doc, burst onto the scene in 1984 at the young age of 19, winning National League Rookie of the Year, becoming the youngest player in history to play in the All-Star Game, and then he would follow that season up with an even more dramatic season in 1985, where he earned the pitching Triple Crown and National League Cy Young Award, becoming the youngest player in baseball history to earn that award. He would also help lead the New York Mets to one of the most dramatic World Series titles over the Boston Red Sox in 1986, but his meteoric rise would be followed by an unimaginable fall due to drug and alcohol addiction, which would plague him for the rest of his career, even though he was able to win two more World Series rings with the New York Yankees, and he even defied all odds in 1996 with the Yankees by pitching a no-hitter after coming back from a one-year suspension due to a positive drug test. And now, episode 52 with Dwight Gooden. Dwight, it's an honor to spend time with you because, yeah, I would have to say that my passion for baseball has waned over the years. But growing up, I remember in the neighborhood, even growing up in Georgia, we all wanted to be Doc Gooden out there playing baseball. I promise you. you. I appreciate that. Yes. Give me goosebumps even thinking that. (laughs) Uh, I said, because, like, myself as a kid growing up, you know, I grew up in very, like, and just, I'm, I'm still kind of shy. I mean, I'm getting out of the bubble a little bit now because it's like going around to my stern, it's kind of getting out of the shell. But my whole thing, I just want to play baseball. Baseball is like my whole life. I love to play baseball. If I'm not playing, I'm going to watch baseball. If I'm not watching, I'm going to learn baseball or teach baseball. But having to do baseball, but I didn't quite understand the impact. And I'm not trying to blow smoke up on one, but the impact that you have on others' lives and the kids by doing something you love, by how they look up to you and how they respect what you're doing and enjoy your brain to them. So, like, now that I'm retired, I look at so these young pitchers, and like I'm a big uh, New York Giants football fan, and I tell the players the same thing. The joy you guys bring me, and the excitement you guys bring me when I win it. And then I can relate that now, that when I was playing, the joy I must fall to other people by playing a game that I was blessed and with and loved with. Yeah, and when did you first really fall in love with baseball and your first memories of just having a passion for the game of baseball? I think um, I started playing, like we used to play in the neighborhood when I was like eight, nine. 
But I was so shocked. I've never played organized baseball until two of the guys in my neighborhood were on the same team. I got on their team all quit. And that was a spot where I could just go be on their team instead of going through the draft where you don't know who team you'll be on. And that's how I got into organized baseball. And then I remember playing organized baseball and doing pretty good. And I remember a funny story where um, my parents came to one of my games. I was just, I don't know what happened, but it was my turn to go off the hip. I wouldn't go off the hip. I don't know if I was um, nervous to fail in front of them or what have you, but I wouldn't go off the hip. And so I ended up quitting the team. And my father said, if you quit again, you can't play. Okay, so I started playing. And once I got like 12 years, well, about 11 or 12, that's what I took it serious. I remember, and, and my nephew, Gary Sheffield, we basically we grew up in the same house. My sister had him very young. So my dad asked me how much like baseball. a lot. So we got to start training. And I remember my first real interest in baseball, even though I played with my true interest, where I want to get better and learn the game and understand the history. So I was probably 12 years old. My dad teaching me about the game. And then on Saturdays, you know, back then in the 70s, in the early 80s, I mean, late 60s, early 70s, you know, I had that one game a week on Saturdays with Joe Gatchelola. By growing up in Tampa, we used to get the Braves games on the radio. So we'll have a game on TV, and we'll have a game on the radio watching. That's how my dad and Jerry spent time learning the game. And sometimes we ask him questions or kind of quizzes about the game. And that's why I really knew I had my true love for baseball at that time, between the age of 11 and 12. And were you always designated as a pitcher? That that was your true talent initially growing up? Yes. And the thing that was amazing was um my dad. That's one of the things I wish I could share with him. I asked him whether he gets knowledge from what was baseball because he knew I was going to be a pitcher and Gary was going to be a hitter. He taught Gary how to hit Gary to Jr. and made me a pitcher. And me personally, I always wanted to be a hitter. I, mean, I like getting my uniform dirty. I like diving balls. So I like, my ticket was pitching. Growing up in Little League in high school, I played other positions as well as pitch. But pitching, obviously, was my ticket. And did you play other sports as well? I played football when I was younger. Um, it was called the Point of the League, the Cal League. And um, I was 11. I broke my arm. I left my arm. And at that time, my mom, she was a friend of football anyway. Because I was the youngest kid. I was like 13 years younger than my next sibling. So to her, I was always, you know, her little baby, her little boy. <laughs> so after that, she didn't love me to play football anymore. In high school, then, were you starting to get noticed as an up-and-coming talent? And obviously, you know, in the 1982 draft, you're picked fifth overall by the New York Mets. But you were surprised that you got picked that high. But had you been identified as somebody that was going to be going straight from high school to MLB draft? Uh, What happened was, like, while I was in high school, we didn't have freshmen. Our high school started 10th, 11th, uh, 10th grade. So 10th, 11th, 12th. My 10th grade year, the high school I was at, we had, I mean, it was known for baseball. And we had ROTC at our school. So the kids ain't living in our district. They can put them in ROTC. And then they eligible to come to our school. So my coach thought that since our school was so loaded, that the 10th grade year, no matter how good you were, you didn't play. You just, you're on the team, but you just learn, you know, practice and do all sorts of the game. So I always thought, you know, some of the guys that were starting, I was a little better than whether it's the third base and the stuff and, you know, get into the pitching rotation. But so I ended up quitting the team and going back to playing in my part when I was 15 as a sophomore. And then when I came back my junior year, um, he treated me like a sophomore, so I had to make the team. And then I played outfield. I was a real pitcher. We had three guys. Like our games was Tuesday, Friday, Saturday. And the first pitcher we had was a guy, Floyd Yeomans. Um, you might remember that name. He was traded in the Gary Carter deals by the Mets. But here's my high school staff. We had Vance Lovelace, big lefty. He was drafted in the first round by the um, Chicago Cubs. And then we got Albert Everett, who was Carl Everett, oldest brother. 
just just I'll do like a rip and then unfortunately for Floyd anyway, he got kicked off the team my junior year halfway through. And I got me into the rotation. And my junior was during my senior, so probably at the end of my junior year, beginning of my senior, I started getting a little from colleges. Um, a couple of teams would come out and uh, have me come out of class, and they would time me in the sixty and hit some fifteen and get me on the mound with Joe. And at that time, I thought I might have had a shot. And then my senior year, and I was getting letters from all just about every school you know in the country. And I ended up getting a letter from the Technical University of Miami. But my high school coach told me, he said, you're probably going to draft, but you're probably going between the 10th and 20th round. And I said, okay, no problem. And I got invited to go down to the Japanese newspaper office to watch the draft. I went down with um, this guy, Richard Montioni, who was a pitcher with the Tigers for a little bit. And then uh, Lance McCullers, whose son, plays for Astros now. But those two guys were been a top draft pick. And so we were down there, and we watched the draft. Obviously, Sean Dustin goes number one to the Cubs. I forget who went two, three, and four. And the fifth thing comes is campus to a good New York Mets. You know, it's his first round fifth pick. I'm like, no, that can't be right. So I had a guy else call New York <laughs> to make sure that was right. <laughs> he said, yes, it's correct. I talked to him, and you're the guy. I really didn't follow Mets that much. You know, in the 80, early 80s, the Mets, you know, one of the teams that you follow, especially being from Florida. I said, well, I couldn't believe it. And my dad had let me um, use his car to drop it. I had to get a friend to drive me back because I was just too excited and just overwhelmed by being drafted. The baseball was my dream. That's all I wanted to do. Now, would you have gone to college at the University of Miami if you would have been selected in, say, the 10th round or something? Yes, because I thought Chip Brown, if it was Chip Brown, I was definitely going to college, going to University of Miami. My mom, and she still wanted me to go to college, even though, and so we had the Mets put it in, our, in my contract that they would pay for school like they were doing season. The things started happening so fast. It's like a rookie year, the opposite of a rookie year, offseason is so busy, and so I never got to go back to school. And you only spent a short amount of time in the minors. Then you get called up in 1984, and for April 7th is your debut against Houston. So what was that day like for you? Unbelievable day. I mean, I went from – and the mess was great because they flew my parents in Houston and watched my first game. So I remember having lunch with my parents – and the bus wasn't going to reach at 5 o'clock. It was a 7.30 game. So after having lunch with my parents around 12 o'clock, and then I'd go back to my room, and then I'd like, got all this energy, all this anxiety, and I'm thinking, man, it's like, you know, it's going to throw out for the bus. So I went down to the National guy, how do you get to the Astrodome? And how far is it? I think he told me about three miles of my year, if my memory serves me correctly. And he showed me how to get there. So I ended up walking to the ballpark. True story. Okay. Walked to the Astrodome. <laughs> now when I get there, I don't know how to get in. So I had an eight-foot fence. I jumped. I climbed the fence. The security guard sees me. He said, come over here. What are you doing? And like, I'm Dwight Gettin. He's like, yeah, you're Dwight Gettin. I'm the owner of the team. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he called the office and all stuff and showed my license. And so, yeah, he's pitching. So he let me in. He said, I didn't want to know why I was I told him. I was very nervous, excited. I was like, you know, just like, and I remember from that point, warm up in the bullpen, I mean, just sweating bullets, sweating, knees buckling. And part of it was like, it's my first game, you know, I'm 19 years old, year and a half out of high school, and my parents are there. And even though my parents are yeah, there, I'm not supportive, but I always had to think about playing in front of my parents. I don't know what it was. Nervous, I want to always want to do well in front of them, even though they probably can care less if I did. I did not know if I was doing something I enjoyed doing. And my whole career, anytime I came to New York or going to Atlanta, I was going to play, I was nervous, but. I sit right there in the front row, so when I take them out, 
the thing. Well, just get through the first inning. Whatever happens, you don't get knocked out of the first inning. I remember Bill Doran like it was yesterday. He took the first pitch of the ball and the second pitch he swung and followed off and then Terry Pools, the second hitter. I think he ended up playing about six or seven pitches in the crowd second base. Dickie Thon's the third hitter, I ended up striking him out. And in the first inning, the strike out though, I mean, I had the real confidence. The nervous was gone. Now I felt like I really belonged. And, and so when I started talking too fast, you just told me not anytime you want. I just get excited talking about this. No, it's that's quite different. all right. I enjoy it. And so now I finished first inning. I ended up going five innings, you know, two hundred, and I ended up getting a win. I can gain. Me and my parents were downstairs in the lobby talking to my dad. Well, son, what do you think? I said, oh, I should win a lot of games. And then I remember the next start, my second start in my career, was in Chicago, and the Cubs knocked me out in the third inning. I gave it eight runs, a couple of runs. And my father <laughs> calls me up to get back to Tampa. Now he says, well, son, what do you think now? So from that point, after three, I was like, well, I don't know if I'm ready. So I went from, I still won a lot of games after the first game to after the second game, not knowing if I'm ready. That's how I game humbles you. So it just you got humbled pretty quickly. It sounds like oh, very quick, very quick. It was amazing. And then uh, with the Cubs, it was amazing because yeah, I didn't know that was their first home game. So they was exercising the fans more to it. And the score run, the players jump around. But I thought it just kind of showed me up because I was a rookie <laughs> with um, a lot of potential. Whatever, but it was their home game. And I remember after the game talking to the writers, I said that team would never beat me again. You know, because <laughs> just the way they was doing, not knowing. You know, being a young rookie and fans took a thing. But I ended up for my career being like 28 and 4 in the lifetime of this because I think they gave my first meeting list. Well, so you kept almost true to your word. You made sure to focus on beating <laughs> the Cubs, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, after that, just like you just say right there. And what about you just mentioned the crowd? Were you a person or a pitcher that fed off the energy of the home crowd more, or did you like? being on the road and so-called the villain on the road and fed off of trying to prove the opposing team wrong? Right, right. Great question. You know, um, I always fed more. I got more so much energy from the home crowd. This is Chase Stadium. There's nothing like it, especially in night games. And especially like I got two strikes on a battle and everybody's standing up clapping and running the strike out. It was no better feeling for me as a young you know, professional player having a young group. I mean, I love it. So I'll say definitely home crowd, but also on the road, like I know, like Chicago, they went up in the bullpen. You're so close to the stands, and they're like Philadelphia Pirates, and then the Pirates, those fans were tough. I mean, they did the homework. They knew about you, your mom, your sister knew about everybody. <laughs> so, that, so that that was like negative energy, but I fell off of that as well. But more, the home crowd, I'll say definitely gave me a lot of energy, and I love it. What about pitching? In the World Series, what was that like in terms of relative to going back to your first game and the nervousness that you had for your first start? Was it the same type of nervousness, or were you confident in your abilities, even though it was the World Series? The um, World Series was obviously nervous. You know, my first World Series, now 20 years old. I think my first start was the most nervous I've ever been in a baseball game. And I was probably saying the All-Star game, my rookie year was probably the second, but then the World Series was right there. Um, I was very nervous, and I had confidence, but very nervous, because now you know what these games mean, and you know it's on national TV and everybody's watching. I think pitching an All-Star game helped me with that a little bit, because I got a pitch in All-Star game at 19, and then in 86, I started the All-Star game, and Houston is coming, so that kind of helped me a little bit towards the preparation goes. But once you take them out in the World Series, this is something you dream about in your backyard, Playing with your friend, and in my case, playing with my nephew, 
And Gary Sheffield, these are the situations you dream about there. You're facing your, your heroes. And now here in Pistons World Series, I mean, that was an unbelievable story in Gary's face. Unfortunately, I didn't pitch that well. And I basically was tired because, I mean, this the whole year and then the playoffs in the future, I pitched two complete games. Well, the second story, I went 10 innings against Nolan. And then the first game, I went, it was the business, so I went eight innings and get one win. So, I mean, you're taking those 18 innings I pitched right before the World Series. I was just off. I just didn't have much in them. I just didn't have anything in those two games. But, I mean, I loved it. The second game, the second start of the World I put way too much pressure on myself trying to do better in the first start, you know, from the first pitch instead of just trying to get through the first battle, first inning, and then taking it here at the time. So those two games, I didn't pitch more well, but the team picked me up and really win it. And, and to your point, just the number of pitches that you had pitched throughout the season, it's completely different now in terms of how many setup guys and how long a starter typically goes. But you're still within that old school mentality of you're going to be pitching nine, ten innings sometimes, you know, if going into extra innings. So how difficult was that for you to maintain that type of intensity for that long period of time? You're right. It's, it's, it's tough because, like, now it is a tough, it's different ball game. I mean, now the pitchers don't expect to do five or six innings. And in my case, you know, obviously, you're 20 years old. You consider the ace of the staff and respect it every start. Expect you to win. Expect you to go seven, eight innings. And expect you to get 10 strikeouts. Especially if you're done and you just try to expect that from yourself. And like I said, by the end of the season, you're exhausted. But then you get that second win. It, Second energy, that's where the fans come in with the extra energy for the playoffs and the World Series. Um, so each game, yes, preparation between starts of getting yourself ready for the next start. Like the, the start, if I pitch tonight, once the game's over, you know, I'll celebrate. If I won, if I lost, you know, go out drinking or whatever. So I make sure I can go to sleep because I carry those games with me. And then between the starts, you getting ready for the next start. So I do that, you know, 35 times for. 30 starts or whatever, how many starts you have. And it's, it's a lot of mental preparation to do the game. A lot of, I think a lot of games, obviously, you're physically tired, but also mentally tired as well. How was that from a mindset perspective for a starting pitcher where you're not playing every day, so you don't have to get yourself up mentally and be prepared every single day? It's every fifth day. So was that difficult relative to how you saw some of the other guys that were everyday players? It can be very tough. If you won and had a great game, it wasn't as bad as if you lost and had a bad game. Those four days sometimes felt like a month before you get back out of the mound because you're so anxious and ready to get back in the mound to do better than the, the previous start. So it can work for you and sometimes it works against you. And so and when you're struggling or going through a different slump, it seems like those four days take forever. It could be so ever-ending. But you have to find something to keep you totally focused and somehow you know, forget about the last start. It's easy to say, but very hard to do. It took a lot of mental practice to do that. And I probably didn't understand that to probably my sixth or seventh year in the league where you was okay, had a bad game, and we just get the work in. And we'll see if they come in let's go from that game and try to forget about that game. Because I would carry my start. If I had a bad game, I would carry it with me until the next start. Where, like the first inning, a guy got a walk, a couple of hits, or so a couple of runs. You start thinking, oh, man, here we go again. And, and, and sure enough, we, what happens many thoughts negative things would happen. But if I got to the point where I could tell myself, okay, you got a hit, no problem. Let me just focus on this hitter. Let me just get ahead, strike one, and go from that point. That's when I became a better pitcher and understood that there's going to be some games or some innings where it's not going to go your way. 
But you, how do you recover? How do you bounce back from that? You try to make a perfect pitch, or you just try to make a good quality pitch, and that was the difference for myself. And early on, were there some games where you and the catcher were not on the same page, where you just wanted to throw my pitch? I'm most confident with, but the catcher was giving you different signs. Oh yes, that's a lot. Um, I was forced up to my first year. I had Mike Fitzgerald, great catcher, only guy. Uh, he liked to train with Gary Carter Joe. And then from '85 to I think 1989, I would say or '90, I had Gary Carter. So I made my job a lot easier. I could just kind of depend on him for the most part. And 90 percent of the time, I never shook him more. The hard part was after they left, you had the young catchers, Todd Hartley, Mikey Sasser, Barry Lyons, and heard those guys. And there will be something in where you're not on the same page, and that's very tough for a pitcher because it breaks up your rhythm and your momentum. If you have step off or you're constantly shaking the signs off and trying to get the right page. I made it, you know, extra tough. I mean, so the key to that was between innings, if the catcher wouldn't come up to hit that inning, make sure you got to hit and try to communicate on the things you kind of accomplish the things you want to do. And obviously having Gary Carter, an experienced catcher like he was, so when he was coming to the mound sometimes to talk to you, what were some of the things that you guys would actually talk about? Was it always just about what the next pitch was going to be, or was it just random conversations at times? Well, it, could, it, it depends on what, what's going on in the game. It could be a situation where he's coming out to be a breather. If you had a couple of rules, or if you had a couple of first, a couple of times when ground balls hit over there, or if you uh, walk a couple of guys or give them a couple of hits, or I get a break ball, he might come up and say, hey, get your arm out front. And sometimes they come out and say, hey, uh, what you want to throw this guy? It might be a baseball player, they're down second. You might have more success against the hitter that's waiting on deck. I mean, the hitter's in the hole with the guy who's there for whatever. So it could be very thing. But I remember I finally started with um, 84, Keith Hernandez. He was like the, my pitching coach on the field. The veteran guy, he knew all the hitters. In certain situations, he'll come into the modern club and doctor, first guy down the way, and walk into a big deal. The doctor, this guy has nothing but curveballs. Doctor, this guy has fastballs. So I depending on Keith a lot. So now, 1985, with Gary Carter, all star catcher, great leader, new game, in the situation. And I remember one game playing Atlanta Braves. I walked out of Washington, and he ended up still expecting it. It was like the 7th inning, and Bill Murphy's the hitter. And we had a base hit, and so Carter comes out to the mound. He goes, let's go curveballs. If we get ahead, we're going to go high fastball inside. Okay, no problem. And so when he's walking back to the whole plate, he spurs to the mound. He's like, what do you say? What do you say? He said, well, here's some curveballs. You know, nothing but curveballs. If we get ahead, we're going to go fastballs inside. And Keith goes, no, 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 no. It's a base open. I mean, hey, the curveball. Just go fastballs, high and tight. If you walk from there, big deal. So now, <laughs> Keith go back to his vision. Gary's putting on the sign, putting on curveball. So now I'm shaking him off. No. Curveball, no. Curveball, no. So it calls time. He comes to the mound. But we get to the mound. Keith sprints to the mound. And those two guys are arguing about what pitch should I throw. I mean, it was like, yeah, hey, I'm a 20-year-old kid. I'm just, you know, watching this. And then <laughs> Mel Stoudemire comes out to the mound and pick it up. Yeah, you were in the middle of these two guys. Oh, I'm calling the middle, and you know, here's that shy kid again, 20 years old, and <laughs> two better guys. And they, I mean, they're going at it. So, Mel Stoudemire, a pitcher coach, comes to the mound, breaks him up, and so he's like, No, we're going to go. I got to go to the catcher, so I said, Let's go cook it. And he did my choice of words after that. He went too happy, but I think we ended up walking with him anyway. But I remember it was yesterday. That is a great story. And now, were you superstitious at all? Oh, very much so. You know, it started in April, which is my first full year. I started that season at 0-3, and um, they were talking about sending me down, but we had this pitching coach, John Cummins, 
He said, no, we won't send him out. Let me just work with him between starts. We're having Mr. Stars in the back. So I ended up going after that, started 0-3. I ended up going 19-4. But once I won about three in a row, I did the third win. I'm actually watching my car that day. And it threw, like, you know, complete game, shut out, like 15 seconds. And so every start, I will start watching my car. I thought that was the reason why. And I ended up winning another, you know, six or seven in a row to finish 19-4. So once I got to the big leagues, I'll continue to do the same thing. It didn't matter the rain or what was going on. I'll always watch my car the way I was pitching, whether it was day game or night game. Unless it was on the road, and then I'm going to do it after Yeah, well, obviously, you had a very clean car because <laughs> you won a lot <laughs> <Yeah>. of games. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, that was the thing. But most those athletes, they're very serious. The same way with, um, with the, the gum, the bubble gum I would choose. I would use mostly bazooka. So now, but if I'm not doing it, I'll spit that out. And why? Why did you choose the number 16? Well, what happened, 10 was actually my favorite number that I wore in high school. When I got drafted, when I got to, when I signed and go to, um, over to Tennessee, Kingsport, they had some guys that had been there before. I remember this guy, Russ Ork. Certain situations, you remember certain things. I remember his name. It was Russ Ork, and he had number 10. When I got there, I was actually the college guy before you had different guy number 10. Russ Ork said, no, that's my number. That's the number I'm going to ask you. I don't care if you're a boy, that's my number. I mean, it was all over me. I said, hey, no problem. So then I asked the guy, what number do you have that's close to 10 besides 13 that I get? So the first number we have to that is 16. I said, okay, I'll take that. The next year, I go to A-ball. I guess the guy just assumed. So I had the spring training in the 16. It just kind of stays. And then finally started about 15, when I got to the majors, Charlie Sanders, the equipment manager with the Mets, they got in all that trouble. Okay, so he was good friends with Lee Mazzilli because Lee Mazzilli, I guess, wore 16 when he first with the Mets. And they were really good friends. So nobody had wore 16 since Lee Mazzilli wore So... Charlie, well, my first duty camp, I actually had 64 spring training, and then I made the team. We were working out at the Stadium. I, my jersey had number 35. So I asked Charlie, I said, um, can I get number 16? Is anybody wearing 16? He said, no, get out of here, kid. You got number 35. Just be happy on the team. You, know, you can't have it. And so I remember Frank Cashin, who was a gentleman at the time, told me if I have any problems with anybody in the room, then let him know. So I went back to Charlie's office. I said, Charlie, why can I have 16? Just tell me why. He said, no, just get out of here. 16 not over. You can't have that number. And remember, I said, we're talking casting camps. Is everything good? Everything all right? I said, well, I wanted number 15, but the equipment guy said I couldn't have it. He said, why not? I said, he never said you just didn't get out of it. He said, well, is that the number you want? I said, yes. And I said, well, Charlie says, no. So I'm like, yeah. So Charlie had to give me number 16. So he gave me number 16. And then, like, for the first couple of weeks, anytime we worked out before the game, and I put myself in the dirty laundry basket, he would take it out and hang it back up. But he was pissed because I was leaving his number. And then after I started having a little success at the Austin game, me and Charlie became friends and he started, you know, washing my uniform. And I ended up being in his wedding in 87 and leaving his He came back to the team in 86. Fires released him and we took him in. But I did offer him the number back, hoping he would say no. You know, I used to offer somebody something, hoping they say no. He did say no, it's the number now. And that's, that's how that number came about. And from your perspective as a pitcher on the mound, who was the best pitcher in your eyes that you saw? Wow, that's tough. Um, wow, the best pitcher. I would have to say, I mean, for me, I would say my favorite My favorite pitcher was Nolan Ryan. He was my favorite. But I would say the best pitcher I've seen in my time. I would probably say Pedro Martinez. Even though, like, I mean, I'm a student of the game, and I grew up in Tampa watching the rest of spring training. And even when I made it, I remember um, before I made it, you know, St. Tom's Super Game, Nolan Ryan, obviously, and this guy, Clemens, but even David Cole, I would have to say Pedro Martinez is the best I've seen for a long period of time and being consistent. 
And what about a hitter? Who did you hitter, have? Yeah, who did you have the most problems with? With the juice, without the juice, Barry Bones the best I've seen. This guy, even when he was with the Pirates before San Francisco, this guy was tough, tough out for me. He didn't really hurt me much with hitting home runs or low ball. I think he maybe two, but he was a tough out. I mean, this guy was like nobody, nobody else. Great hitter from the time he did it. I think he got caught up in 86. The Bones, I love just take Bones, the hitter and Pedro Martinez's pitcher. And as we talked about a little bit, your platform of being able to have a voice now because of your uh, baseball career and what you've went through. So what was the motivation for you to write your book, Doc, a memoir? I think it came a time where I actually got comfortable in my own skin and understanding who I am and what I stand for and understanding that these things happen and for me to get better. I have to talk about these things. It's no more of a secret. And I want to tell my story, and I have somebody tell my story for me. And I think by going to, when I got invited to go to celebrity rehab, I went there all the way because it wasn't about shows. I went there only because I knew it was televised. But I want everybody to hear my story come from me. And then be completely honest with it and just take a chance with it. Get outside the book and just tell the story. But like I said, you're not knowing how people are going to accept you. I mean, the stuff that's already out there, stuff going on, obviously, being rehab, so they knew I had the problem. But let them hear from me what happened, why it happened, and what I'm doing now about it. And so that's going on that show really helped me open up and always tell people to take that mask off and let people know they real me. That, yeah, these are things I did do when I liked my addiction. It took me places that I would never go. And so I had to do that. And I think that's the only way it's going to help me get out of that, that dark hole that I was in. It's just been honest with what happened. And yes, I have here made mistakes, a lot of mistakes. But this is what I'm trying to do now. That's the person I'm today. But while I came on addiction, this is what it took me. I did a lot of things I wasn't proud of, but this is what happened. And I had to get onto myself by telling people that. And then I remember I had a sign that I had to do the 12 steps. Basically, you talk about yourself and different things and what took place and how you deal with it. So I was doing basically some homework inside the rehab. And I, I just thought that when I was doing the steps, the 12 steps on myself, God actually touched me. And I thought that. You know, this one went through. So, how about sharing this story with somebody else? And turning my work, I mean, this work that I had to do, the assignments that I had into a book, show others who may be suffering with what I was suffering through, or someone that has a family member that's suffering from, you know, just disease, and sharing with them. And I thought about it, thought about it, and said, well, some of this stuff I don't know if I really want out there. And I remember talking with my mom and my kids and saying, you know, think about doing a book, and I want to talk about some of the stuff that happened that didn't, they don't know, some of the stuff that, you hear about, but I want them to hear my side. Some of the stuff is not too good. And I said, well, it's going to help you and help others. You have a blessing. And so I went ahead and Danny had a great co-writer in Alice uh, Hennigan, and he did a great job. And I remember doing that book, and some days you leave there exhausted. Some days you're crying. Some days you're happy. Some days you're laughing. Some days you're sad. And some days you're going to go home and go to bed. I mean, I, I did some, a couple books before that, but this I was definitely was my real first book right here because I bear it all. Everything that happened is right here. Like I always tell people, one other thing about me, you read that book. That's my whole life right there, right here. The good, the bad, everything. And when I first did it, when the book came out, the day it came out and released, I remember being so nervous. So nervous not knowing how, you know, you're going to be accepted now in the public eye, how people will accept you because, wow, this guy did this, wow, this guy did that. Because like you say, like some guys, they hear like, oh, wow, he's a great pitcher, he's a great person, he did this, all the good stuff. 
But then it's like, why are you going to be stepping out by the same fans that here for you? The best stuff you did. Like, like I said, I was missing my kids' birthday parties. We wanted to take them to death in the hospital. You know, very high. Just basically, just red. I mean, all these different things. That's just like missing the parade. Uh, all these different things that took place. Um, shared all that. And I think when people start talking, I feel like, I mean, obviously, I don't think it's more favorite. So many people came in and said, that, wow, thanks for getting a book. It helped me a lot. Or a lot of I saw from the same thing. Or, wow, thanks for getting a book. I bought my son, but it's so great. And that was the thing I was looking for when they get that feedback. Not knowing, but that made me feel real good about it, and that made me stronger about it. Because when people, when people say those things, get that feedback. Because when you spend your soul, what happened? All the stuff that you did that hurt people and different things happen. When you start off bringing joy to these people, now you're breaking hearts. Meaning family, friends, fans, loved ones. You hurt them, and then I mean, you, you had joy and bond hurt. How do they accept that? And then to hear people say, well, I like you more now than the person more than the baseball player. And that's what you're looking for. And then when somebody say, well, you really helped my son, he turned his life around. If we're talking about, you know, living, dealing with a life now. So that that was the joy to me. That made it all worth it. Of course, and that's a true impact. And I commend you for being able to put yourself out there. It's one thing putting yourself out there on the baseball diamond in front of millions of people on TV and live. But when you start sharing the details behind closed doors that people don't normally see, that's very tough to you to do. And I, I commend you for being able to do that because it's obviously been impactful for so many people to understand your struggles and that they can relate to that and what the positive impact you can have. So when you look back at your career and even looking forward now as you're continuing your message, what does sports mean to you and what it has meant in your life? Sports has been a great thing for me. I mean, it, it allowed me to do things. Like I come from like the inner city. Um, we didn't have much, but my family always had love for one another. Always supported one another. My parents were always there. And... My playing baseball allowed me to do so many things for my parents and my kids, and my family, to get out of the situation, get out of bad neighborhoods, to get them a nice home, and let them let me show my pictures of what they did to me to put me in a good situation to succeed in my dream. Just give it back, and then have an impact on the community where I started, and the really part that I played at the route by the project, going back there and giving to those kids, and then from a baseball standpoint, but then on the other part, by playing baseball, now it has me helping those that are suffering or in pain, living life on life terms from disease, drug, alcohol, or it could be somebody's homeless, sharing my story with them, or it could just be a kid, counting the parents, not there, taking that kid to a game. If I hadn't played baseball professionally, been blessed to do that, I don't think I had the opportunities to reach people like this while I had my problems because it would be no platform or nothing really or to get these kids, especially our adults, attention. And so baseball was not only giving myself and my family a good life, but good friends and good people in my life. And it's also given my opportunity to reach others in the real world. When I say real world, people that have a nine to five, they may be going through different things and being able to share my downfall. I mean, I always tell people, well, fortunately, the situation I put myself in, the disease I have with drug alcohol, probably saved someone else's life by them saying, well, I had to do Like with my kids, I have seven kids and five great kids. Because I was married twice, so I always tell my kids, I've lived the life for you guys as far as the 
bad things because all the kids who are dorsal skull, seeing what you're doing, seeing the scuffle, I mean, struggle when we do. So if you guys have any situation of doubt or want to try this or try that, try some bad people, look at my life. I was take away the baseball and stuff, but look at this part where I disappointed you guys. I wasn't there for you guys' birthday parties. I wasn't there for you guys' school events. I missed you guys' game. I showed up high. So I'm drunk. I showed up low. Look at that. And I think for my kids, but look at my downfall, what well, we're through at the time. I used to help them. Only one son had problems during the home, and now he's a right now He's doing well. My kids are doing great. And for his, you know, regular people I run across, I love shit. I said, I say, hey, I'm in, I'm in the program too. So it's not just the baseball run now. It's bigger than that. So I don't look at that as a responsibility. I just look at that as those people give me strength as well because they're accountable. You know, I hold myself accountable and then they hold me accountable. If I'm doing good, because you're in the public eye, especially now with social media. So I would say the baseball give me a platform that I would touch fans' lives, but to touch our lives. And I think the good Lord works through me at times to, to do that. I give him all the glory. Yes, that's fantastic. And what other words of wisdom, any phrases, quotes, mottos, or life advice that you would like to share, Dwight? I think with me, it's just like I'm saying earlier, I've turned, like all the stuff I've done on advice is what good is having a life if you can't impact another's life? And by impacting one life, you impact many because that one life you impact is what's your history as well when it goes on and on. That's fantastic words of wisdom. And I know we're right here at spring fever. Or spring training is starting. So, Dwight, do you get excited every spring with spring training starting? Oh, definitely, yes. And um, it's funny, my girlfriend now, she like, oh, he watched my baseball. Oh, <laughs> baseball coming. I said, <laughs> the baseball didn't hurt because I have the baseball package. And like, right now, I have a message Houston game on TV. And basically, my schedule is around baseball. I have a baseball package. So, you know, baseball season, watching spring training games. Oh, he might be watching all the games and then during the season. You know, I watch the West Coast games come up at 10 o'clock, so I'm watching the games all day, all the time. I just have a love for baseball. And are you doing any type of coaching or anything of that nature? I actually just got hold of the I was down in St. Petersburg, Florida, working with a team from Japan, the Miami Baseball Club. They had um, Jim Arena Gong called me. I had left the Mets fantasy camp. I saw everybody to New Jersey. He called me and said, there's a team from Japan going to be in St. Petersburg on the weekend. They'd like for you to come work with the pitchers. So Ray, you know, we always joke with each other. So I'm like, yeah, Ray, but he's not I said, well, how did that come about? He said, I don't know. It's called this guy Richard Seca, who I met in Puerto Rico in 1995. And we talked to him. I hadn't talked to him since probably 19, I was like, probably 1997, 98. And he's part of that team. And, so I just got back today from working with the pitchers for two weeks, and then I've been invited to go to Japan to continue working with them. I'll probably go two weeks, out, you know, every other month to work with those pitchers over there. Well, I know they'll get a lot of education from you, and you'll be able to help them out tremendously. And speaking of helping out tremendously, Dwight, you've helped me out tremendously. It's been an honor spending time with you and learning a little bit more about your history, of what you've gone through, and what you're looking to do moving forward. So I can't thank you enough for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. You're a good man. If you're ever in town, let's grab lunch or dinner or whatever. I'd love to do that. And uh, very nice talking to you. 
Addiction is an ugly animal, and many lives, families, and careers have been destroyed by the power of addiction, regardless of what that addiction is. And Dwight was seemingly on a surefire path to being one of the most dominant pitchers in Major League Baseball history, and Cooperstown was not a matter of if, but it was a matter of when. He's now on a mission to use his platform to tell his story of those struggles, of the downfalls, of the pitfalls of addictions with just hopes of impacting one person and just maybe saving them from this terrible word, addiction, and the consequences associated with it. It's easy to be in the spotlight for all that you've accomplished, but sharing your darkest secrets is a whole nother story. But with Dwight, I do think it's truly proof that he's a horrible warning and a great example at the same time. Now that finishes episode 52. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 